This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we learn the art of silverware making at a historic factory in Birmingham. The force of the hammer dropping will drive the metal and produce a sharp reproduction of all the detail that's carefully been carved into the die, transferred to the face of the silver blank. We look back on the story of J.W. Evans as a family business. Quite often we have visitors who are very local and the first thing they'll do is come and say it smells right, it smells just like how my uncle's workshop used to smell. And so what we don't want to lose is that feeling of really stepping into that sort of forgotten past. And we also look forward to its future as a museum. More from Tony Evans and curator Beth Stanley shortly. But first, here's what's on our production line over the next few weeks on the English Heritage Podcast. the Sixth Earl of Chester, when he started building Beeston in 1225, he wanted it to be a massive fortress. And originally, the walls were all painted white, so it really would have been a beacon in the landscape. In a very short space of time, these volunteers have got to get to grips with methods and construction techniques that would have been known for thousands of years and would have been inherited directly from previous generations. So we are learning from scratch, really. This is the famous portrait of the Duke of Wellington painted after Waterloo by Sir Thomas Lawrence. Often if you have a pub called the Duke of Wellington, this is the picture that hangs outside the pub. Make sure you subscribe to join us on those journeys across time very soon. Now, today we're in England's second city, Birmingham, and more specifically, its jewellery quarter. The area is home to Europe's largest concentration of businesses involved in the jewellery trade. The jewellery quarter's main industries have declined since their heydays in the 1900s, but as we'll find out, one family business still managed to come up with the goods for more than a century. I'm meeting Tony Evans, a third-generation silversmith. Now tell us, first of all, where we're standing. We're in Albion Street, obviously. We're in Albion Street in the, in the jewellery quarter of Birmingham, only about a short distance from the Chamberlain Clock, which is at the hub of the, uh, of the area. We're opposite the property, which was owned by the company from number 54 to 57. My grandfather started the business here in 1880 by renting just the one individual building, number 54. And that's the blue door to the far left with... Yes. J.W. Evans and Son, Stampers and Pierces, Offices and Warehouse written above. That's an original sign that goes way back to the very beginning. Oh, wow. Anyway, Jenkin moved here as a single man. Uh, he moved here as a single man to start his own uh, business, making dyes and tools for the production of silverware and jewellery. The properties are all individual homes originally and being converted by their uh, owners at the, at, the, at, the, at the time by putting workshops in their, in their gardens. And that was the case with my grandfather. He started in 1880 and uh, his, his workshop and so on lay on what would have been originally the garden behind. Well, let's step through, up the steps, through the gate for number 56. And we come into... The room on the right-hand side, as we turn right, this is the one with the bay window in it, and we are greeted with lots of pictures from the past. The, the photographs are around the wall. Many of them are from uh, original glass plate negatives. We still have the original whole-plate mahogany uh, uh, camera, 
with a huge um, uh, brass lens about the size of a tin of Heinz beans. Uh, but they took uh, many photographs in the early 1900s, and there's about 60 glass plate negatives uh, in existence, which are a wonderful window into how the factory was, if you like, in those early days. And we can see that camera that you just mentioned there lying as a picture, a picture of a camera lying on the table there. As we cast our eyes around the room from the bay window, we can see pictures of the workers from uh, various eras. The one over the fireplace here directly in front of us is the Evans workforce outside the factory circa 1893 to 6. So they'd sort of been into business about yes, 15 years or so by that point. Yes, yes, approximately. And the, you can see there's a huge variation in the ages and some of them are very young. I mean, they were, some of them would have started probably the age of 13 or 14. Got four uh, or five, maybe six boys at the front there yeah, in the centre. Being trained to, uh, to, you know, to have individual skills in the various processes that the company used you know, to, you know, to uh, manufacture. It's a black and white picture, as it would be in those days, but you can still very much see the dirt and grime on their aprons. Yes, they, were, they, they, they obviously didn't, weren't laundered every week. <laughs> but uh, anyway, but it's, but it's, it's a good idea, and of course their appearance, their clothing and so on, is certainly quite a window on how life was and how lucky a photograph was taken. Absolutely, and one of the most striking ones is the one to the right of this, which is a picture um, it's probably about two and a half feet tall, maybe three feet tall, a couple of feet wide, and it's of four men, two men at the back, younger, two men at the front, probably in their sort of 30s and 40s, both with those strong, thick, bushy moustaches yes. uh, of that era of the... They were, they, they were all stampers doing uh, the fairly heavy manual job of drop stamping to stamp the metal uh, into, into the, into the dies. This photograph was taken before the First World War. Um, my father could remember that the guy on the right at the back actually died in the trenches in the First World War. So, so it, and yet, uh, when it's enlarged, you know, to this extent, because they become people again, and uh, they, obviously you can see that four very different individuals, but they were all working together in the same workshop at the time. Now, move into the next room, and there are more pictures on the walls here. One of them is an aerial view of the terrace itself. We can see as well the roof and what would have been the original property that your grandfather owned. And behind that, an area which I believe was already a workshop when he bought it. Yes, well, he actually rented it to begin with. And what had been the garden was already laid out with the ground and first floor workshops and an open yard beside that. At what stage does this open yard then become what we see in the picture, which is covered over by glass, almost looking like a conservatory? After about 20 years, in around 1900, what had been my grandfather's landlord had passed away, and the, the, the man's will had decreed that the property should be sold, and so my grandfather somehow managed to raise enough money to actually buy the block of four terraced houses. And once he got his hands on that, then he could knock down the intervening uh, yard walls between the properties and then glaze over the, the gap between the two workshops left and right to form the roof for uh, a machine shop. Now we're standing, your hand is laying right now on a cabinet, which is about waist height. Inside there's a lot of objects. Can you talk us through some of these objects and effectively what J.W. Evans and Son made? Well, J.W. Evans originally made dies and tools 
for other silverware manufacturers in the jewellery quarter and possibly uh, in other towns as well to produce a particular product for those uh, companies. But after a while, my grandfather decided that instead of just making dies and tools for other companies, if he made dies and tools on his own account, to his own designs, he could sell to those same manufacturer customers components like Airfix kits of parts so they could assemble candlesticks or source boats or other parts and finish them off and complete them within their own workforce. And he was obviously quite a successful idea because my grandfather embarked on creating a, a range of products but all these had to start off by the making of, a, of a, the steel dies to produce the components. But he, he was quite prolific, and I, even today I can't get my head around the fact that he was creating between 300 and 330 new designs per year, making the tools, and he kept a record of these in little notebooks, about A5 size notebooks. And fortunately, he titled the top of each page with a year. And we can see in front of us right now in the corner of the cabinet, one of those books, which is very well worn and uh, has got a lot of sort of dirt and grime. But thankfully, as you say, it's got the years when they were made. So 1895 is the page that we're looking at at the moment. And there's one, two, three, four, five about 10 designs on both these pages. But if you went back for the first entry for 1895 and then counted the, the, the items which have been added until you come to the first one of 1896, you'd have been passing between 300 and 330. And that went on year, on year, on year, on year. A huge investment in uh, new products and a new, a new range for the company. Edwardian time was a, a late Victorian was one of the boom times for the silverware trade. The demand, if you like, from the public was really quite high, because the people who had started to uh, increase in their um, in their income could afford a maid, but they, uh, there was no such thing as a flat in Spain or a mini for the wife. Uh, so the money got invested in the home and decorating the home, and if silver tarnished, it didn't matter very much because the the maid would have been cleaning it. And so it, it, it was a time of boom. Well, let's um, move into the next room. We're going out into the entrance passage, which runs up through the, the centre of the block of buildings, and it's the entrance that the employees would have used to come to work each morning. It's a narrow space with brick walls, but uh, they've been painted over in the past, and there's still the remnants of the, of the white paint and some of it chipping off. We're going past the time clock, where they would have clocked, the, clocked in and clocked out of the uh, factory to start and finish work. There's a couple of old cards left there as well. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so where are we standing now? Well, we're we're now in we're, the old yard, aren't we? We're standing what, we're, when Jenkins first came, he would have had just one side of this yard. It would have been an open yard to the sky, and the, his ground floor and first floor workshops are to our left as, as we look away from the frontage building. But we're looking at rows of uh, drop stamps, which mechanically, if you like, have got a similar similarity to a French guillotine, if you like, in the way they operate. But instead of a sharp knife, we're looking at a heavy weight riding up between vertical machine rails, and that can be raised to perhaps six or eight feet in the, in the air and then released, uh, so gravity uh, makes it drop obviously very hard down onto the die below. And someone not familiar with what it looks like, I suppose the best way to describe it would be almost like a, a guillotine moulding device. Uh, effectively yes, yes. a metal steel mould 
and you place your and then thin sheet metal on the top and then uh, and then the, drops the guillotine and, the and so the force of the hammer dropping will drive the metal and produce a sharp reproduction of all the detail that's carefully been carved into the die transferred to the face of the silver blank well can we ha have a listen to how the drop stampers in the in the yes. main area of the workshop work the, uh, you have to turn on the electric, don't you? There's a shaft running across from end to end of the shop, which all these uh, drop stamps are attached to, and they get their power from this electric motor. So we're just going to press the, the green button. There goes the whir. Almost sounds like a train pulling away in London. Oh, right, yes. <laughs> Especially yeah. on the Piccadilly line. <laughs> yeah. so, so the wheels above us are turning. There's about... Eight or ten of them, maybe? Half a dozen in this row. Uh, and they're, they're all attached. They have a, 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 a wide pulley at the top, which is being driven round in the, in the, towards us in the ceiling. And the, the strap from the, uh, from the hammer it goes up and over the top of the, of the pulley. And then at the final end, it's, it's attached to a rope, which forms a handle for the stamper to, to pull on to raise the hammer up to the top. Now, I'm going to go up to the, the, this hammer which is set up to produce a decanter label at the moment and I'm going to stamp a decanter label in the die and you'll, uh, you'll hear the, the effect as I pull on the rope and let go the hammer will then rapidly drop under gravity to, to smash the piece of silver into, into the die to form the decanter label but it will be fairly loud. Okay well I will step back and make sure that we don't damage the microphone. Here we go. So Tony is pulling on the rope and He's about to let go, and that noise shows that he has made an indentation at the bottom. So I'll come back over a little bit closer. Can we see what you've just um, created there? You've made an indentation on what looks like a copper piece of uh, metal. Actually, we stamped a, a copper blank, but that could, could exactly the same thing would happen if it was a, a real silver blank, uh, but it's been cut to size. The metal being used is about half a millimetre thick for this particular job, and uh, so but one blow with this is sufficient to get it up sharp. But articles which are a different sort of shape, or rather deeper ones, it might take several stages before you've got the, the, the blank into the die and have it really sharp, ready to go on to the next stage of manufacture. So you, despite that force of gravity and the weight of this massive piece of metal above, you still have to do a few drops to get the right imprint. Sometimes, I mean, there's sufficient force in this one to do this little uh, decanter label, which is only, uh, say, twice the size of a postage stamp, uh, to get that up, uh, all the crisp detail, in one blow. But uh, articles which have more depth in them, the metal has to be coaxed into the die, uh, and it might take several operations to, uh, to, you know, to get to the final position. And how heavy is one of these drop stamps because it's a massive lump of metal probably I've, about a foot I've long. Never, I've never weighed one but I guess it, it must weigh at least a hundred pounds. So that's pretty heavy and yeah. there are some to the, towards the right hand side there which look even thicker. Probably well, probably the width of maybe a football. Well, the, this, this, this hammer is designed for articles up to, a, to be stamped up to a certain size but obviously, we, we over the we, in the range of articles we made, uh, you, uh, the articles are different in sizes. I mean, some of them are uh, around trays and so on. Uh, so the the drop that you have to have a range of sizes of machine to cope with the different widths of uh, product you're trying to make. Okay, 
let's turn off the uh, machine. One point about the, the, the noise of the drop stamp is that we've just heard uh, one stamp striking once, but it, the, the shop might have had about uh, eight men all working in this particular shop, and so there'll be a, a ripple of uh, these bangs going on all day long. And would they have had ear defenders in those days? They didn't exist in those days. No, I mean, they might have had a twist of cotton wool in their ear, but I mean, it would have had no effect. So it, it, from the point of one's ears, it was a bad trade to be in. But, uh, but on the other hand, it was, the, it was the way it was done at the time. As we look around any wall on, on, the, on the ground floor, there are like library-type shelves, but fairly close together, and every inch is covered with, uh, with dyes that have been made. There, there are thousands and thousands. They are literally covering every single wall, everywhere I turn, even right up to the ceiling. They almost look like little um, kilogram weights that you'd have in primary school to measure things with. There's just loads of those. Yes, yes. And they're all, but I suppose they would have all been black originally, but they've sort of become more brownish over the years. Sometimes, depending on uh, where, where the, the gaps between the time each one might be wanted, the Evans never got rid of any dyes and tools because something had stopped selling. And in one extreme case, I can remember, we started to produce an item 100 years after it was last used. Wow. Which was a Vesta, a match case, a Vesta, Vesta box, which we did specially for a firm of collectors. Across time, what was the workforce like from 1880 to 2008 when eventually you closed? Well, I think in the heyday, uh, I believe there was, about, there was about 60. One of the treasures which uh, are in the archive here is a wages book going back to the 1890s, which shows they were, they were working a six-day week, 66 hours a week. That must have been, that means 11-hour days. Really hard, uh, hard graft. But all of the people learnt individual skills, so they, they weren't just pushing buttons. Each one was having a very personal input of their own particular train skill for which they'd been trained, bit by bit. Of course, they, they, at the end, you get, you get a, a high-class product at the end. But uh, one thing which has been quite a, a feature is the loyalty which people that have worked here have had over the years. And in my time, quite a number have done more than 50 years without a break, including one lady. Goodness. You know, who were married but didn't, unfortunately didn't have children, and she carried on working, and she spent her whole working life here. So I mean, the, the loyalty, which we, from that point of view, and lack of turnover of staff, uh, really, I, I think it was really very creditable. One of the main questions I had for you was, yes. what was the best-selling piece that you would sell? Probably uh, decanter labels, because uh, it, it was a silver gift. If, um, because it only weighed a few grams, it was in, in the in the jeweller shop. It was at the bottom end of the scale, something with a hallmark on. We were probably very well known for candlesticks, though, and candelabra. And occasionally, I get to see candelabras and centerpieces on television, in a special program like um, Poirot or a, a period costume piece. We sold a number of these candlesticks and candelabra and centrepieces to a firm that actually hires out to television, film and theatre. Only last week, I, I, the, or the week before, there was a programme where I said, there they are, look, a tall, 20-inch high, seven-light candelabra lined up all the way down this banqueting table. So it's, it's nice to see, see them appear again. Now, where should we go from here? We, there's another doorway. We right. can head through there, I believe. So we're going to go up the uh, wooden stairs. Some of the treads are pretty, you can see they've been used for quite a few years. They're worn. Uh, they're worn and slightly dusty, by, I would by, say. By, by many feet. Once upon a time, I could go those two at a time, but um, not today. There's <laughs> a very old type of light switch on the left-hand side as we walk up as well. 
You can very much hear that we're walking on wood. Uh, it looks like someone else is up here as well. What's your name? Hi, I'm Beth Stanley and I'm one of the Conservatives for English Heritage. How long have you been doing work here at JW Evans? Well, I got involved with um, JW Evans not long after we acquired it. So on and off, that's been about 10 years now. And what work have you actually done in that 10-year period? Um, well, it's varied. At the start, I was actually the project conservator here, so that was much more intensive work, and that was here day in, day out. And um, that was very much working on the building fabric and doing quite large-scale works, including entirely re-roofing, because we had lots of leaks going on, works to some of the walls. One of them that adjoins 58, where the tenants are, was actually starting to fall over and had to be tied back and a huge number of other sort of making good works to windows, to guttering, the normal sort of thing you would do to a historic building. But what was unusual here is that we kept everything in situ, so you'll have seen the huge amounts of dyes and shelves and equipment with Tony's who've walked around. And what English Heritage felt was really significant here was that feeling of such a complete space, of it being untouched and being a bit of a time capsule. And so after a lot of discussion and a lot of thought, actually, we decided that we would keep everything, as I say, in situ and here, rather than recording and removing the hundreds and thousands of, of items and then trying to put them back to recreate the atmosphere that was already here. How did English Heritage come across this property? Well, we were aware of it um, and had been for, for a while in Birmingham because it was picked up as part of a survey that was done within the jury quarter looking at significant properties. And certainly the story that Tony told me was um, he watched a lady in the rain getting progressively wetter drawing the outside of the building and he eventually took pity on her, gave her a cup of tea and let her inside. And that's when we realised the amazing quantity of not just the building but actually the collections associated with three generations of a family being based here. How does J.W. Evans, as a former business, now make the transition to being a living museum? Almost like it was when they downed tools. I think that's challenging. And as I say, that's partly why we carried out the works in the way that we did. And we also think very long and hard before we really interfere in any way with the building or move collections or carry out works here. We feel it's important to have, where possible, still have machinery working. So the main stamp shop where you would have heard the motors running, that is the last part of the business that still ran so we've kept that up and running although we've done maintenance it still looks oily and and uh, like it's just finished being worked on and we're also very careful how we run the space so we're really really keen that visitors and the members of the public know that this hidden gem is here but we have it as a guided tour because what we don't want to do is tidy up the tottering piles of pressings and the huge numbers of items on shelves. But it does mean that you can only get small numbers of people around here because the rooms are small and, as I say, very crowded. The main thing you want to get across really is that you have to pre-book tours and you have to have a small group really because we have a lot of heavy things that are lying around and you have to be well supervised. I think so. I mean, it's, it's always a compromise, although it makes it slightly more difficult in terms of possibly people coming here and us running it, we feel that payoff is important, certainly at the moment, because of the feeling it gives you. And it's interesting that quite often we have visitors who are very local, and the first thing they'll do is come and say, it smells right, it smells just like how my uncle's workshop used to smell, or this looks just like I remember so-and-so in the jewellery quarter. And I think there is always that slight danger of wanting to tidy things up too much and kind of set dress. And what we feel is really important here is this is an authentic business. We took it over as 
a going concern, albeit on a smaller scale than in its heyday. And so what we don't want to lose is that feeling of really stepping into that sort of forgotten past that, you know, once upon a time would have been happening behind so many of these brick facades that you see in the jewellery quarter. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To learn more about the history of the J.W. Evans Silver Factory, just visit the English Heritage website, where you can also find out about our special members tour in September 2019. And for a sneak peek of how items were made, there's a video on our YouTube channel. We're back next week. Until then, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. See you next time.